the first machine made art, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, and so the case, the court case challenged the photograph itself to sort of prove itself as an art form. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello and welcome to episode 12, the last episode of the second season. Today we're going to talk about photography and copyright. Let's listen to our guest. Hi, my name is David Newhoff. I am an American, as in a United States American, because uh, there's more than one kind. Uh, and I'm 54 years old, and I am a writer and often a copyright advocate as well. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today to talk about um, your career and your book. Before we talk about further on this very interesting title, I love the title, by the way, of your book. Thank you. It's Who Invented Oscar Wilde? The Photograph at the Center of Modern American Copyright. Before we talk about that, uh, let's talk about your career. How did you end up being a writer and finally uh, working towards copyright awareness? Like, well, like any any creative person, um, backwards and sideways, but in, in no particular order. But my well, so my my background is in uh, filmmaking and video production and a lot of media and communications. I've always written something uh, throughout my career, whether it's scripts or or essays or whatever it is I'm writing. Um, and I worked in the film and video uh, business in New York City predominantly for over 25 years. And I sort of backed into copyright advocacy, partly through a friend, because a very good friend of mine from college named Sandra Istars was the head of Copyright Alliance um, at the time. And we just got talking. And that was at about the same time that the whole a SOPA PIPA battle was raging on the internet. Um, and that particular story got me interested simultaneously in two things. One, copyright advocacy, um, but also because of the scope and scale and hyperbole thrown at trying to kill those two bills and eventually did kill those two bills. I also became interested in what the internet was doing to distort reality. And this was back in 2011, 2012, when that was going on. Um, so yes, I was advocating the passage of those laws because I thought that they did something important to fight piracy, um, but also just the kind of level of, of antagonism thrown predominantly by the big tech industry at, at those. And Um, and I became very concerned. I thought, what's what's happening to our democratic process? If the truth is distorted this rapidly, God, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, and those two things kind of converged and became the blog that I write called The Illusion of More um, that launched in the summer of 2012. And yes, I write about copyright there. And then And then I also write about sort of digital age issues, whether it's Section 230 topics or, you know, I take a sort of skeptical view of what many people call tech utopianism. Right. This idea that that the Internet has made everything better, um, which was a very popular idea about four years ago. And then after, uh, you know, after a while, after acquiring enough knowledge about copyright in general, Um, and circa 2018, I thought I really would like to, to write a nonfiction book that there was nothing really out there. Pardon me for, um, you know, for the general reader, there's a lot of academic books and there's sort of a lot of how to books, you know, in, yeah, in the yeah. world of copyright. 
Um, but I didn't think there was much on the general for a general reader that uh, that sort of you know covered some of the history and some of the core ideas that was accessible for anybody who was a non-attorney. Um, and that's that was the that was the goal. So it is right. refreshing to find a book like yours in such an well, interesting you. topic. <laughs> Uh, who invented Oscar Wilde? Um, the photo made the author or the author made the photo? Important. Well, since, since you put it that way and since you mentioned the title, I'll start with where the title came from. Um, so, um, well, I got to give a little bit of background. So the the decision I made in terms of the focus of this book was to put the case called Burrow Giles v. Cerrone at the center, as make that a centerpiece of the book. Now, attorneys know this case because it's a landmark case, but for anybody listening, um, in uh, 1882, when Oscar Wilde came to first to New York, but to America to do his lecture tour that lasted about a year, he took a series of photographs with the then most famous celebrity photographer of the era, uh, of the age, uh, named Napoleon Cerrone. He had a studio in, in New York City on at Union Square. And one of those photographs, number 18, was uh, infringed by a lithographic company for, I can get into the details, but suffice to say, it was, it was infringed. And uh, Cerrone sued, and that became a landmark copyright case because the defendant uh, alleged at the time that photography was not properly protected by copyright, that it was unconstitutional to for Congress to have protected the photograph, even though they had written it into the law in 1865. Nobody had really challenged the, the thinking behind it. And that was important because... What the case did was it asked in in many ways the same question that a lot of the artists and critics of the te- of the period asked, which is, is there any authorship in a photograph? This machine, you know, light strikes a plate and this machine makes the picture. Where is the human authorship in this in this photograph? And it was the first time anybody it was, the you know, it was the first machine made art, if you will. Um, and so the case, the court case challenged the photograph itself to sort of prove itself as an art form. So the legal, the legal question also sort of converged with the cultural and artistic question that would already, that had already been bubbling really ever since photography was introduced to the market. Um, so, uh, sorry to go back to the title though. Um, it comes from a, uh, a somewhat sarcastic headline in the, in the New York Times, the day that oral arguments began at the Supreme Court in 1883, the New York Times posted a headline, did Cerrone invent Oscar Wilde? And they were being a little bit cheeky about it. Right. right. Um, and and of course, but without necessarily meaning to, I think that editor really kind of put put his finger on it uh, because that was the question is, what does it mean to invent a piece of work? And of course, at the time, the word invent and but today, no copyright attorney would ever say invent in context. They would say authorship or author. But at the time, invent and author were a little more interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read the briefs from the case, you know, even Cerrone's attorney makes a whole big deal about what it means to invent art, um, which, again, we would never do that today. Because <laughs> that's that's the that's patent law. But um, but anyway, that's that's where the title came from. And, and you know, that that question was really uh, had, like I say, didn't really mean to, but kind of put its finger on the question of what is authorship? What is human authorship? And as a result of 
you know, the outcome of the case, the the protection of, of photographs, it does it did change copyright doctrine. Um, and it, and I was intrigued by the fact that it did so just at the threshold of the 20th century, when of course machines and creativity would you know, machine-made art, if you will, or machines playing a role in the production of art would explode. Motion pictures were very close behind. And, and of course, we know the rest, you know, um, on into the digital age. So, you know, and then the, the fact that of, of all people, the other thing that intrigued me about it was that it happened to be Oscar Wilde because I think photographs are, they're inherently paradoxical um, legally and creatively, right? A photograph mm-hmm. tells the truth. But it's also an expressive uh, form. Is it the uh, is the is the author saying something, or is the photograph just re- you know copying reality? That's a legal paradox because, of course, we know photographs can be evidence in a court case, and uh, and so on the one hand, if they can be evidence, how are they expressive? But um, but what intrigued me about that is, of all the people it could have been, it happened to be Oscar Wilde, uh, who is. A, a paradoxical figure himself and happened to be at a particularly paradoxical moment in his life at that time um, because, and I explained in the book why he came to America, um, which was essentially to play a character. Yes, he was giving a lecture as Oscar Wilde, mm-hmm. but he was also here to sort of play a character to help promote a, a Gilbert Sullivan show called Patience. And um, that character was something of a self-satire. It is. It was in a way Wilde was sort of sent to America to mock himself, (laughs) which is a strange place to be (laughs) in life. You know, so he he was he was he was here. I mean, he needed the money. He needed the job. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was there to sort of promote himself as 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 an author who had yet to write any of his famous works. And at the same time, he was there in the employ of Gilbert and Sullivan being somebody who was essentially mocking Oscar Wilde. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, all that sounds very attractive. So I decided to make that this, you know, the centerpiece of, of a book talking about. I couldn't imagine someone better to focus on that as such an enigmatic persona as Oscar Wilde, because we're still discovering uh, his life about everything that he lived throughout his art and also in his personal life. He was a person ahead of his time in many things mm-hmm. and, and also very troubled in the situation that he, he had to live. Quite an angle <laughs> to, to yes. your book. Uh, can you talk about other landmark cases uh, that establish uh, copyright here in the U.S.? Well, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this and... Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, first of all, I should I need to stipulate that my book very much focuses and I admit it from the beginning on American copyright. As you know, there's copyright copyright differs around the world and there's no way I was going to try to truly embrace all that in a, in a relatively small book for for, you know, for for general readers. Um, and so, you know, I don't really think of landmark cases per se establishing copyright. But what I did focus on was this longstanding debate, pardon me, that goes all the way back to sort of proto copyright regimes, which is in England, um, which is is copyright a creature of statute? You know, is it just created by virtue of the statute or is it a natural right that the statute 
protects. And that battle rages on to this day. Um, you see it every, you know, all the time on the internet. Uh, needless to say, the, the critics of copyright tend to favor a statutory, you know, creature of statute view and pro copyright folks are more, a little bit more amenable to a natural rights view, but that even that, even those lines are certainly not straight. Um, but in terms of cases, so, you know, in, I did focus uh, in uh, in England in, 18, in the 18th century, in 1769, there was a case called Miller v. Taylor. Um, and that, you know, kind of what happened was after the Statute of Anne was passed in 1710 um, in England, which is considered the first author-centric copyright law in Anglo-American law, right? It also created this sort of challenge for the book, the booksellers versus the the you know the sort of independent booksellers and the stationers company booksellers the uh sorry the tradesmen of the, you know the the guild sorry mm-hmm. and um and by virtue of the statute of Anne passing what happened is um you know it, it puts very specific limitations on you know copyright protected for 14 years and it then creates this problem of well did the copyright exist prior to the statute so did it um so, you know, do, do, does it extinguish the common law copyright? Uh, and did the copyright common law copyright even exist? So the two cases that sort of determined this doctrine were, you know, Miller v. Taylor in 1769 essentially affirmed that authors had had copyrights in the common law and they were in perpetuity um, and that it was mostly codified by the statute. But then along comes another case over the both over the same poem, by the way. <laughs> Both over a poem called "The Seasons," um, and and the, and in 1774, Donald V. Beckett says that the statute effectively extinguished the common law right um, uh, once the work is published. That you know, unpublished work is had had an, had a an, uh, perpetual copyright mm-hmm. under common law, but that once it's published, then it entered the terms of the statute and the statute effectively extinguished that, that perpetual right, um, which tilts toward a, a, you know, copyright protection as a creature of statute. Of course, part of the challenge is that in England, all the proto sort of proto copyright regimes had nothing to do with modern copyright at all. Mm -hmm. Right. They, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they were about, uh, they were about royal prerogatives to control work. They were about censorship of, you know, based on religious doctrine. They were about yeah. so many different things. Um, and also, and also giving a guild exclusivity, which all the guilds had exclusivity. That was the purpose of the guilds. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they didn't really compare, um, to, to modern copyright, let alone American copyright. And then of course that same question came, arose in the first Supreme court case in the United States. Uh, which was uh, Wheaton v. P- Peters in 1834, um, really over the the texts of Supreme Court, the, the reporting, the reports of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, the, there was the court ruled unanimously that, of course, those reports are not subject to copyright anyway, but they also mm-hmm. constituent to the ruling um, held that copyright in the United States is a creature of statute. Though, as I say in the book, I think that they that the reasoning is actually kind of flawed. Um, I mentioned that because in the in the I mentioned that the the reasoning in Peters is that the word secure mm-hmm. um, in the copyright statute in the IP statute um, to secure the rights. Um, the Peters court held that 
that that word meant to, uh, it wasn't a word of origination, meaning that, you know, that, that the statute had effectively created the law. Um, I have issue with that, as I say in the book, because, because the, the, perhaps the most prominent, the case I make is that the most prominent, um, use of the word secure in the American constitution is the preamble to secure the blessings of liberty. I guarantee that the framers didn't mean that those blessings of liberty were created by the, and that moment. the document that they were saying that we're protecting the blessings of liberty, not creating the blessings of liberty. <laughs> so it's, it seemed like an odd interpretation to me. But anyway, they're not going to overturn Peters, Wheaton v. Peters anytime soon. And, uh, and it doesn't really matter because that debate still rages on. It's not an easy question. Yeah. What should be protected? Uh, what is a creation? What is not a creation? Uh, so it, it's it's always raining mm-hmm. on that, and now we are we're walking towards the AI creations. Should they be protected, or the creator of the AI is in fact the author of the creation of done by the AI? So now we have we have more right. questions than answers. <laughs> you are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, as you know, I address AI in the in the later chapters you do, you do. of the book, and that's one of the you know one of the questions a lot of people ask is is you know is an AI work protected? Um, I think the answer will come will if the person if the person you're asking owns the AI, they're going to say yes. Of <laughs> you know, it's in their interest. My 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 own my own view is that it isn't that AI produce work. I mean, you know, I, I come, I, I make the point fairly consistently that, that, that it's pretty hard to have the, the foundation of copyright is predicated on human authorship. Humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and photography makes that point um, yeah. because it it sits right in the middle there between mm-hmm. human and machine. Uh, but at the very least, it's a collaboration between human and machine. You, you also mentioned, um, I think it was a gorilla. The one that took the photo, uh, uh, the monk, the, the monkey selfie, monkey selfie. Yes. yes. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. The monkey selfie. <laughs> I do have a section in the, in the book, uh, addressing the monkey selfie. Cause of course it, it, that the, the case, um, does rate, you know, or, or it's not even a case, the, the whole online Contra- controversy. <laughs> yeah, controversy is a good word. Um, it it definitely raises that same question, right? Is there authorship? And of course, as we, as many people know, uh, the organization PETA tried very hard to make a case that that uh, a monkey can author can author a photograph. Um, I and for the same reason, I I'm I personally could not, mm-hmm. you know, could not okay. could not get behind that for the same for the same reason that you know that the copyright is predicated on human authorship and of course it's mm-hmm. it's doctrine in the US as well. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's it's part of the is part of the cop, uh, copyright uh, office doc um compendium that mm-hmm. you know very explicitly states what human can creation. Cannot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um you know, unfortunately I, I also make the case that that David Slater the photographer Mm-hmm. In that story, um, was effectively, I think, um, stripped of his copyrights by the internet, for want of a better way to put it. That that it was what I, as far as the information that is available 
Um, and really it's David's story because uh, we don't have any. There are no other witnesses other than the monkey uh-huh. <laughs> or monkeys, I should say. But the way that he describes taking the photograph mm-hmm. and setting up to take the photograph. And also there's more than one. Um, in my opinion, it, it qualifies for as authorship in a photograph. And um, and that really what happened is the whole story of the monkey selfie sort of got out of hand <laughs> online and then Wikipedia made a whole big. The Internet is very good for escalating. <laughs> situations. You think? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about one of America's favorites, universal favorites, actually, uh, Mickey Mouse. How is Mickey Mouse responsible for the copyright we have today? <laughs> You know, the only reason Mickey Mouse comes up in terms of copyright is is the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, um, you know, which which as many people uh, know, as many people know, extended the uh, the copyright from life of the author plus 50 years to life of the author plus 70 years. But the answer to the question is what Mickey Mouse has to do with that is nothing. <laughs> um, now, as, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it is an, I mean, Mickey Mouse obviously is a, is a, um, is shorthand for meaning the Disney corporation. We're not mm-hmm, really talking. Of course. About it, but but it, it is a myth out there in mm-hmm. the universe, in the blogosphere. Um, uh, you know, the story in many people's heads is, oh, the term on Mickey was about to expire. And Disney pushed really, really hard for the Copyright Term Extension Act. And they, you know, practically knocked on Sonny Bono's door. And, you know, and the next thing you knew, copyright was expanded for 20 years. And then some people take that story and say, you know, and tomorrow the studios will be pushing for another extension, (laughs) you know, which, first of all, on that last part, there's no evidence of that. Nobody's pushing for a longer copyright, you know, but also, uh, as I describe in the book in this section, the truth is much more boring than that. Uh, you know, the United, first of all, the United States has almost almost entirely throughout its copyright history played catch up with the rest of the world in terms of uh, in terms of term length. Uh, first, it was it was slow to adopt the life of the author plus regime at all, which, you know, for for anyone who's a non-attorney listening. You know, you can, I, we used to have terms that were just a fixed term, 28 years or whatever. But then, but we were not the first to come up with the life of the author plus kind of regime that those, those had been proposed in other countries and adopted in other countries long before the United States did. Um, and proposals I, I talk about, um, the English uh, parliamentarian Thomas Telford, who was the first English uh, lawmaker to propose a life of the author type regime and also a, a fairly long extension at the time. He was proposing a 60 year and that was 130 years prior to, you know, a lot of what we're talking about. So um, so the, the 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 whole idea of term length and and a life of the author plus and all the they, they existed before the U.S. Through in, in what's called the Berne Convention, which the U.S. Well, took about 103 years, I think, to get around to finally joining. And at that point, by the time it, it went into effect the following year, uh, the EU is already about to form. And so the EU extends their copyright terms uh, by 20 years. They create a, establish a life of the author plus 70. And then the U.S. is again playing catch up. That, that's the kind of boring answer as to why the U.S. adopted the, the Copyright Term Extension Act is to say we need to catch back up to our European partners. 
with whom we do a lot of trade and have the same terms so that American authors are not disadvantaged and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so that we have the same, you know, parity basically with, with our trading partners. Um, And in fact, you know, it was only named after Sonny Bono because he had died in a skiing accident. He, he Mm -hmm. wasn't the lead author. None of this is to say that Disney was not very much in favor (laughs) Of course. Of the extension. <laughs> they were definitely in favor of the extension. I'm sure they were very vocally in favor of the extension, as were many other studios and other copyright holders. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it just isn't the case that Mickey Mouse um, had anything to do. <laughs> we are debunking the Mickey Mouse uh, myth. Yeah, well, I try to debunk the Mickey Mouse myth. It, it doesn't make, as you know, it doesn't make an, a myth die. I mean, uh, a firmly held belief is is not easy to unstick. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Even with all the evidence. <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. So finally, um, to quote your book, in its highest creative use, the technology enables new forms of expression. With these new forms of expressions, are we reinforcing copyright protection or are we making copyright obsolete? Um, well, I, I, I'm going to answer that partly with a question <laughs> back at you because, um, I mean, just for context, that that quote comes from a section where I'm discussing deep fakes. Yeah, yeah. I obviously am describing as a very low use of technology in my view. For the most part, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be, but today it usually is. It usually <laughs> is, um, and and I'm making the point that of course we can use it for high use, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but but I just wanted to to clarify what when we you know in, in a broader sense, um, uh, sort of new forms of, of creativity or new forms of creative expression can mean a lot of different things. Um, mm-hmm. So in context to your question, are you asking about new forms like mashups and, uh, you know, kind of YouTuber type stuff, or are you asking about other, or, or is it a more general? No, it's the first one the, the, about the, the deep fakes, the mashup, um, the, the YouTubization of life right, <laughs> and right. everything, everything on that area. The truth is that that things, you know, uh, phenomena like YouTube have created a rationale for more use of existing works. Um, and some of those uses are very clever. Um, they're, you know, we, we could say a lot of nice things about it. Some of them aren't, but some of them are, are wonderful. Um, and so the sort of copyright critic crowd says, well, you know, look at all these new uses. Copyright is really ill-equipped to handle this. I don't think that it renders it obsolete at all. For one thing, um, a lot of those, a lot of those creators, as we've already seen, have discovered the value of copyright for themselves. If you look at some, some of the intramural battles on YouTube itself, where YouTuber A has his or her work used by YouTuber B without permission, mm-hmm. they suddenly realize, oh, copyright actually. <laughs> Means something. That's for something. Um, yeah, it it actually it actually has a function here, and that's why uh, they created YouTube. Actually, created what they call their copyright match system mm-hmm. for that purpose, so that the sort of YouTuber v YouTuber, if you will, sort of conflicts can be worked mm-hmm. out. So, same principle. You know, obviously, anybody who spends time and energy and creativity working on something has a certain interest in whether it's financial or, or, or personal. So no, for, you know, in general, I don't think it makes it obsolete. Um, Yes. uh, We do see, you know, it it makes it more complicated in, in many ways 
from an enforcement standpoint, because there's no question, you know, every five minutes, somebody is making a video that uses a piece of music or a piece of artwork or a clip from a film. In practical terms, a lot of copyright owners simply decide, I will let that go because it's really not doing me any harm because it actually would be a fair use or it's just too much to address. I don't think though, that just simply because that because the volume is so high that then people should, you know, kind of jump to the next logical conclusion that, oh, then copyright is obsolete and mm-hmm. because it's completely unenforceable. Google and company would like everybody to come to that conclusion because they don't like any friction and they flow of anything uh, yeah. it's in their interest. But uh, but no, I don't think that's the correct conclusion to come to. Um, and, you know, and I would also add that that, you know, if we broaden our thinking about sort of quote new new forms of it of of expression right i i also think about other phenomena like think about how say binge watching and mm-hmm. the explosion of what's happened on what we used to call television the small screen experience right has changed dramatically it's a quasi internet story because really it's just a different pipe <laughs> but um you know instead of a coaxial cable it's an ethernet cable it doesn't really yeah. matter but you know, the dynamics have changed. And, and so things like binge watching and the Netflix experience haven't just changed our habits as viewers. They've also changed the way productions get done. They change the way scripts are written. They open up possibilities for works getting done that otherwise wouldn't get done. You look at something like uh, Queen's Gambit, which is a great example something that you would never make of a feature film that long. You couldn't get away with it. And yet it also doesn't have to be an ongoing series that might run five, six years uh, Mm -hmm. to succeed. It can be a limited, what we used to call a mini series, um, but with tremendous production values and, you know, and, and, and appeal to the kind of audiences that we have today because of the way the technologies have changed. So, mm-hmm. and there's no way copyright isn't part of <laughs> is obsolete anywhere in that anywhere entire story. <laughs> not, not on any First, if we have it comes from a book first, and then mm-hmm. it got adapted, and yep. second, right? <laughs> yeah. So copyright is, is in every step of the way, and then as in, you know, in the streaming as well. And it, it's interesting the streaming itself how. It started from the obscure side of let's stream this uh, illegal <laughs> content uh, for mm-hmm. people recording in inside the, the local uh, cinema or or mm-hmm. just uh, taking a DVD and uploading it, and then it catch on, it catch on, and every, and and the, the content maker realized that this is what this is how consumers want to watch and enjoy entertainment they want to do it freely through their homes and they're willing to pay for quality so let's mm-hmm. let's make that happen yeah no i think that's true i mean i don't know that i would i i normally don't give the sort of pirates that much credit <laughs> <laughs> um I tend, you know, something good. <laughs> yes no i mean you know a it's it's a well the only thing I, I i i qualify there is because i mean it's it's an argument that's been around for a while which is that mm-hmm. you know if say the 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 mainstream producers or the you know the for-profit producers would just figure out what the market wants then the market would stop pirating well we've already seen that that's just not true the the motion picture industry for example as you know has has mm-hmm. adapted tremendously you know yes. we 
And sometimes I, you know, I, as I've mentioned a couple of times on the blog, you know, we, if you, if you're a millennial and younger, you know, and you think okay. all this is, is yeah, it was sure. But you think all this stuff is normal and this amount of volume is normal. But when you, you forget that it wasn't that long ago that, you know, I might go to the, I would go to Blockbuster, mm-hmm. spend a few dollars and rent a few movies, at least one of which I would never get around to watching. And then I would turn it late and pay too much money for. Always late. And, right. Whereas now for the, for the price of two of those films. Mm-hmm. I have a jukebox full of motion pictures and TV shows that I can watch at my command and people still say, well, it's not enough. <laughs> people are you never know. satisfied, but I'm a millennial, no. but I'm a developing country millennial. So, I think it makes uh, a difference. Te- yeah, technology <laughs> took a bit uh, longer to get <laughs> home. But yes, um, it's, it's, it was truly a different experience. Just to walk in the halls of the movie printer, we had called a place called Home Movies, very close to, to where I grew up. And we would go there on a Saturday afternoon, spend like two hours deciding what movie to watch. Sure, sure. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then going back home. And it, it was it was quite an experience. But now it's different. Now we spend, uh, what, 30 minutes <laughs> browsing, looking for something. <laughs> right. No, I, I make that joke all the time in the house. <laughs> we've, we've switched from the channel surfing to just browsing the titles as they, you know, just flipping the titles as they go by and still saying, oh, there's nothing I want to watch. Yeah, is- exactly. <laughs> We're never satisfied. <laughs> yeah, you know, which is, I mean, it, you know, we, we joke, but it's also, I think it is part of the, part of this narrative of, you know, and, and part of the reason I call the blog the illusion of more is that, you know, mm-hmm. is, is this illusion that, that we, you know, I want everything and I want everything that com- has ever been written, said, sung, you know, at my fingertips. You know, you, you have to sometimes remind yourself that you're human and mortal. Yes. <laughs> Very important. And, and sometimes, yeah. And sometimes paring down what you consume might not be the worst, <laughs> worst thing you can do. You know, there's, yeah, a, there's such a thing true. as media gluttony, just like there can be any other food gluttony, you know, you can. Yeah. And we see it with children, right? You know, that's yeah. a conversation that's been, you know, how many screens, how many hours in front of how many screens can they have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before it has a, a detrimental effect? So, yes, of course. And everything of too much is wrong. Uh, so it's, that is a weird translation of a Dominican say, I'm trying to mm-hmm. say that everything that is too much is, is wrong at some point because it's, it's meant to make you harm in a way. And except perhaps money, but even that, even that can point. be, yes. Even that, yes, yes, that could be too much. Well, in I, the wrong hands. It, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So David, any final words to our audience? Uh, if they are a creator um, trying to make their their, their content uh, protected or, or trying oh to God. navigate uh, this right. uh, new copyright reality. <laughs> I do try to advocate when, you know, when I meet creators um, or talk to other creators. I mean, it, it's one of those weird animals that that nobody ever thinks about. It's, it's a strange thing because, I mean, copyright's always been this sort of backwater conversation. And yet, ever since the internet and Napster, it's where it isn't a backwater conversation. It's a war. It's a battle that we see go on. But I think a lot of creators just don't think about it. And so, I mean, to the in answer to that, I think it's part of the reason I wrote the book is I think if, if you are involved in any form of creative work, whether it's writing or motion picture making or dance or anything, that having some framework for where those 
rights come from, a basic understanding of the history and a basic understanding of what some of the core principles are is probably a good idea. I see sometimes I follow some chat boards and whatnot, and I see creators, authors, professionals make glaring errors in in some of the advice they give one another on on chat boards about copyright issues. It's not that you need to be an attorney, be your own attorney, but there's an extent to which, as you know, um, some authors have to be sort of their own attorney in some cases, like when they ask themselves fair use questions or they ask themselves, you know, basic questions, at least having some framework for what the core principles are is a good idea, I think. Which again, is not to say go go and write your own contracts or or, or, or sign them without counsel advising you, but but it is a good idea. And don't and don't listen to every rumor you hear on the internet. There's, well, there's just a lot of confusion out there. You know, yeah. there there are a lot of there are a lot of especially on topics like fair use, where you you know you'll hear people say, "I, I fair used this." Doesn't, what? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't. No, no attorney would look at you and say, "Okay, I understand what you're talking." About. <laughs> yeah. So that's just that's that's my answer to your okay <laughs> your closing <laughs> question. But, no, it's, it's a it's a great answer. <laughs> like, but I really appreciate I really appreciate the conversation and you and you reaching out and to talk about the book. Yes, me too. I, and I really advise everyone who's listening to get uh, your hands on this amazing book um, titled Who Invented Oscar Wilde? The Photograph at the Center of Modern American Copyright. And my publisher is published by Potomac Books. My publisher won't appreciate my not mentioning that. And so we come to the end of our second season. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us, for listening in to all these amazing stories and amazing guests. We meet again on the third season. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.